Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2005, historian James Whiteside bought a Harley-Davidson Heritage Softail, christened it Old Blue, and set off on a series of motorcycle adventures. Over six years, he traveled more than 15,000 miles. In his new book, Old Blue's Road, Whiteside recounts his travels to the Pacific Northwest, Yellowstone, Dodge City, Santa Fe, Wounded Knee, and many other places, and considers the ongoing struggle between Indian and mainstream American culture, the meaning of community, the sustainability of the West Hydraulic Society, the creation of the National Park System, the Mormon experience in Utah, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, and much more. And he reflects on the processes of change that made the American West what it is today, the complex ways in which the West past and present come together. A native of the American West, James Whiteside is a retired history professor. He lives in Denver. He's author of two previous books. He was awarded Colorado Historical Society's Leroy R. Hafen Award, the Colorado Endowment for the Humanities Publication Prize, and was finalist for Colorado Book Award in 2000. James Whiteside, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. How are things in Logan oh, today? Things are, are wonderful. The, the, it's been incredibly seasonally warm, but uh, we're, we're back to a little more uh, seasonable temperatures here. So it's just, it's Yeah, been a, that means the first or the last uh, hard freeze is about to hit us. Pro- probably so, after everything, everything is butted out. Right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so uh, fascinating experiences here. And from the perspective of a historian, I wanted to start with... Uh, you know, a brief uh, thumbnail sketch of, of your, your history. You're, so you're a native of the West, what, Denver, born and bred? Or? I was born and have lived uh, almost my entire life in Denver. Uh, so, so not a bad place. Um, and you were able to, you, you got into, um, got your PhD in history and then uh, taught at various universities. Yes, I did. I was, I was for some time what uh, is known in the academic world as a freeway flyer. Uh, teaching around uh, various front-range universities until I finally uh, settled in at the University of Colorado at Denver around 1990. And as you say, the university administrators love freeway flyers. Uh, they're they're cheap and, and expendable, I guess. Exactly, yeah. and they they don't get uh, benefits. Yeah. Uh, so you married a lovely young woman who got a law degree. So she was she's a lawyer. You moved into a I don't know it was a Victorian home, old home. So you became you, you had a lot of sawdust around. I became very good at making sawdust, as I put it. Uh, you know, a hundred-year-old home requires a, a certain amount of uh, daily maintenance and uh, rehabilitation. Now you so, got. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, so, well, so, it's just I, that's, that's some. It's a set of skills I I developed in addition to uh, talking too much. Yeah, <laughs> and, and probably a good. You know, have some physical labor there and to, to offset the uh, intellectual pursuits. Yeah, that along with my uh, my bicycling hobby. I was, uh, yeah, kind of kept me grounded in the non-academic world. So just going to bring up the bicycling. You you got into that big time. You you and you you rode what they call centuries. Yes, I did. Um, I'm a little beyond that now, uh, since I'm in my mid sixties. I I probably still could do it, but I don't think I'd enjoy it as much as I used to. Um, but I try to pound out three or four thousand miles every year. So then comes a uh, I guess a turning point. You you recount a. Some ongoing bureaucratic battles with some unnamed vice chancellors of the, the university there, and uh, you, 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 you were looking for something. You, you turned to motorcycling. How how that happen? Well, um, it had been a lousy couple of years at uh, at work, owing to uh, some vice chancellors who seemed to have decided to make it their uh, life's work to make my life miserable, and um, my 
bicycling friend and partner, who I call Phineas, announced one weekend that he wasn't going to be around to pedal with me because he was taking a motorcycle licensing course, and then in a, within a week or two, he had a motorcycle, and uh, I was jealous, but I I just couldn't see spending that kind of money on another toy. I figured my wife would kill me, but <laughs> eventually I was able to, to whine and plead, and she uh, relented, and, and uh, I went off to the Harley dealer and found this big red soft tail that I uh, purchased on the spot and named Old Blue. So it's, so it's red, but you named it Old Blue. Yeah. <laughs> now, what what is it? Parenthetically, Don't ask me why? There's no yeah. there's no compelling reason. <laughs> so, what is it about Harley's? I, I know I know people love Harley's, just love Harley's. I mean, there are a lot of different motorcycles. You know, uh, I was sort of following my friend's lead. He bought a Harley, and he liked it, and uh, and so that's kind of where I went. And mm. certainly, the Harley is the iconic American motorcycle. So I, I uh, didn't spend a whole lot of time agonizing over what I was going to buy. It just seemed like that's what I was going to do. Uh, I'd like to read a passage from the book. This is page six, uh, the, okay. the middle paragraph there. And this answers the question I had going in, which is, why a motorcycle? You know, you could tour the West in a car. I guess you could you could ride a bicycle. You could do it many ways. But this, this sure. in a dramatic way, answers that question. All right, um, let's do that. Um, the fall and winter months of 2005-2006 were unusually mild, and I was able to spend many afternoons and weekends on Old Blue, sharpening my riding skills and becoming more comfortable with longer and faster rides. On a Saturday in mid-November, after three months of riding in and around Denver, I headed out alone, westbound on US-285 into the mountains, breaching the forbidding barrier of my bicycling youth and of my bicycling adulthood. I had traveled US-285 between Denver and Fairplay many times by car, but on this trip something happened to me that had never happened on any previous trip. At the top of Kenosha Pass, 10,001 foot above sea level, the road goes into a sharp right curve. At the curve's apex, Mountain, hillside, and forests suddenly give way to the seemingly endless vista of South Park. I gasped as I rounded that curve and looked into the long, almost flat mountain valley. Descending the pass and riding into the valley, I realized that I had just had an experience I could not have had in any other way. On foot or on a bicycle, the scene would have unfolded gradually and thus lacked the element of surprise I had just experienced. It had never happened and could never happen in a car because, seen through car windows, the world might as well be on television. But on Old Blue, that sudden view of South Park was an aesthetic smack in the face. As I rounded that curve, not only the view, but the temperature and even the smell changed. Before I reached the bottom of the pass, I wanted that kind of experience again. By the time I reached the town of Fairplay, where I gassed up and turned back toward Denver, I resolved that I would spend as much time as I could traveling by motorcycle, searching for more such smacks in the face. So, yeah, that's a dramatic experience, and I guess uh, addictive. You, you want you want more of that. You really do. You really do. 
So your first trip was, I, I, you uh, decide to, I think based on a facetious comment your wife made, uh, take Old Blue on, on a trip and meet your family at family reunion up in the Northwest. Yeah, in, in February of uh, 2006, uh, I, I now have the bike for four or five months, um, my wife and her sister and brother and various of their cousins began planning a family reunion, and they would meet in uh, Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And not for a moment intending to be taken seriously, she sort of facetiously suggested that I could ride my motorcycle to the reunion. And, of course, my eyes immediately lit up, and there was no further discussion about the matter. It was simply going to happen. And so I, I spent the next several months until the following August sort of meticulously planning every every turn and every stop of this trip up to Victoria and then back. But, and uh, that was going to be my first uh, really extensive road trip on the motorcycle. But at a certain point, this turned into, I guess, a, a more organized, a more defined project, I suppose, that you're going to explore the, the West. Well, it started out as just a road trip. You know, I, I didn't have any intellectual purpose in mind in, in undertaking this journey. But as I rode along, I, I uh, you know, the historian in me started stirring as I would uh, cross through uh, or pass by various historic sites, such as the Oregon Trail or, or Yellowstone, uh, and later on uh, some of the sites of the uh, Nez Perce War of the 1870s. And uh, I, I finally started thinking, you know, you idiot, you haven't been taking pictures, you haven't been writing down notes, and, and this is a way to encounter not just the West, but the West and its history. And so as soon as I got back from this trip, I, I sort of reconstructed uh, the journey uh, in terms of the things I had seen, some of the people I had encountered, some of the other experiences, and and also um, the history I'd encountered on the way. And I started noticing something, and I, 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 I hope this theme resonates through the book, um, and that is the way or ways in which the past and the present sort of, as I put it, rub up against one another in the West. Uh, the the traditions, the conflicts, the problems, the issues that uh, Americans and other, others dealt with in the West a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, are still very much with us and still very much resonate in uh, in the in the Western experience. And we'll talk about uh, those things uh, as we go along. Okay. Uh, some, some interesting themes. I want to get into uh, the idea of uh, resources and this idea of manifest destiny, and you you, uh, you give a nice overview there. And Frederick Jackson Turner, and I'll have you remind us of uh, his important ideas. But you get into this with a very funny scene in Yellowstone. Um, yeah, you're <laughs> you're in your motorcycle. You're as as often if you ever been to Yellowstone to, during the peak season, you, uh, anybody can relate to this. What you recount in the book, you're stopped behind a bunch of tourists who just stop in the middle of the road whenever they see some wildlife. Yes, uh, that's considered to be appropriate behavior. Evidently, in Yellowstone, is uh, uh, upon sighting a a bear or a moose or a squirrel, uh, one apparently is expected to stop your uh, your car right in the middle of the road and and jump out and and 
ogle or uh, <laughs> even pursue the animal. In one case, uh, I think you're talking about, I uh, came to a, a, a fast and grinding halt, and uh, as I sat there, I saw coming toward me a small herd of bipeds who inhabit the park <laughs> in the summer, and they were they were running toward me, and their arms were flailing, and you know they were gesticulating, particularly into the woods, and jabbering excitedly. And and since I had on my helmet and the bike's engine was still running, the only word I I, I heard clearly was bear, <laughs> and I thought, hmm. Now, I am I am no outdoorsman. Uh, you know, to me, roughing it is a hotel without room service. <laughs> But I thought that somewhere there must be written down a rule that says something to the effect of, do not chase the bear. And then it occurred to me there's probably a corollary to that rule that says something to the effect of, you are not really chasing the bear. The bear is merely letting you run after her until you get too tired to run away when she decides to turn around and chase you. So that was sort of my... Uh, my first encounter with uh, both forms of wildlife in uh, in Yellowstone, the four-legged and the two-legged. <laughs> and, and in fact, you saw a gentleman approaching a, a bison and yes. uh, looked for all the world like he wanted to pet that, that animal. Yes. Um, well, there is in the book uh, a photo I took of, of the uh, Yellowstone bison in its favored habitat, which is standing in the middle of the road. And... Uh, or at least off to the side of the road. And um, so this was shortly after the, uh, the uh, encounter with the bear people. Uh, I rolled on perhaps a half mile more, and, and while not coming to a complete stop, I was down to a crawl. And I noticed a sign off to the right on the shoulder of the road that said something to the effect of, bison are wild large and often ill-tempered animals and it's best not to approach them and uh, I immediately then saw that some people take this as an invitation to approach the bison uh, in this case there was a, a man uh, slowly creeping up towards this enormous bull sitting there in the in the roadway and uh, he had his hand extended in, in what I describe as a sort of interspecies peace gesture. Um, I never did find out for sure if uh, he had uh, managed to greet the buffalo or if the buffalo got up and left or the man thought the better of his effort. But uh, I, didn't also, I didn't hear any uh, news reports that night of a man being killed by a bison in Yellowstone either. So yeah, it's good. I guess they uh, managed to uh, part company peaceably. Yeah, good news. <laughs> and then you take, then your historian in you takes over uh, and, and you reflect. Um, this is fascinating. This is, a, this is a very modern urge, isn't it, to, to interact with wildlife. Before it was, well, you know, you, you, you kill it and you eat it or you use it up. Yeah, you know, Traditionally, the attitude toward wildlife and other resources is is use it. You know, I call it kill, eat, wear, and then add also in the case of uh, bison and beaver profit to the equation. But you know, you you, did, you have to get into the 20th century before you you see 
this urge to to pet a bison. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's 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 a it's a very modern uh, attitude toward wildlife as 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 something that goes beyond you know something that we can we can utilize for our purposes. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 you know still reflected in in the larger attitudes of of people that the resources of the West are are something to be used to our purposes. Yeah, this goes to, you know, manifest destiny, right? It was mm-hmm. it was our destiny as is American white people anyway to to fill the continent. And right. Use up all the resources. Well not only that, but the the process of spreading over the continent according to Frederick Jackson Turner and, and others like him was was what had made America and the American people the, as they saw it, uniquely democratic and individualistic people they had become. And at the time Turner was writing, uh, he and others were very worried about uh, what was going to happen because uh, Turner himself was writing uh, in the wake of the declaration by the U.S. Census Bureau that there no longer existed a a, a identifiable line of frontier in the American West. Mm. So if this this vast place, this this resource that had uh, made America what it had become by the end of the 19th century was disappearing, what was going to become of American culture and American democracy? If you just joined us, we're talking with James Whiteside. He's a retired historian, and he uh, embarked on uh, several motorcycle journeys, added up to about 15,000 miles. He's written about his experiences, and so interesting people he met, places he visited, and uh, historical context. What is the American West? Um, in fact, the American West is the subject of the book, he says. Old Blues Road, A Historian's Motorcycle Journeys in the American West is the title of the book. We're going to take a break when we come back more on this idea of frontier and uh, and then how we interact with the West. I, I connected up James Whiteside. We'll talk about this after the break. Your experience in Yellowstone, where, where it seems like some people are just treating, you know, this national park like, like sort of like a television show. And then your experience in uh, Deadwood, I believe it was, where, where that sort of, uh, you know, holding on to one idea of, of the past is, is what brings the tourists in. More following sure. the break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Deciding to move, most adults believe they'll be able to care for themselves for the rest of their lives. As parents age, ask them to honestly answer how they plan to care for themselves. Help them be realistic. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. A missed payment or a slip and a fall. If you have planned together, deciding to move becomes a simpler process. Start the conversation to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum, Family First Saturday, exploring the dynamic cultural heritage of Israel. Saturday, April 4th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Old Main. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is historian James Whiteside. He embarked on a series of motorcycle adventures. The result is Old Blues Road, a historian's motorcycle journeys in the American West. And uh, in the book, uh, Whiteside reflects on the processes of change that made the American West what it is today, the complex ways in which America's past and present come together. He says this was a theme that he noticed repeatedly in his travels, the past and present rubbing up against each other. Um, so uh, I want to... Uh, Start this segment with this quote. Um, you, you say that that historians, anyway, often wonder: Is the West, talking about the American West, a place, a process, or a cultural ideal? What's your answer? Yes. Yes to all of the above. Okay. Yes, I think so. Uh, uh, and there's another quote. Uh, this is a little bit later in the book. This is a quote from Clyde Milner, who. Uh, People at Utah State University will remember, taught, taught here for a while. Um, and uh, he says that uh, the West is an idea that became a place. Right. And then you say the reverse is also true. That's exactly right. The, the West is a place that became an idea. Uh, and this, this links to our previous discussion about Turner and you know, the, the, the process of, of continental expansion across what comes to be called the West, uh, defining or helping to shape what we as Americans came to believe and still believe uh, about ourselves as a society and as individuals. Mm. Um, so the, the West, in a sense, is the, the theater in which this, this uh, drama is acted out. And that has a powerful effect on us, doesn't it? You you write for one example, as, as a young boy, <laughs> tell me about the uh, was it kindergarten and the Lone Ranger? Yes, um, my mother swears this is a true story. Uh, first day of kindergarten, or actually preschool, um, all of us kids from the neighborhood who were beginning our our school adventure, uh, the the young teacher had us uh, circled up in our little chairs and uh, was uh, going around the circle asking each child to identify themselves. And when it came to be my turn, I said, I'm the Lone Ranger. <laughs> and uh, she was a little bit taken back and uh, she said, no, no, what's your real name? And I said, I'm the Lone Ranger. And so uh, she turned to the little girl seated next to me who uh, evidently she knew, uh, realized, knew me, and, and, and she asked the little girl, Terry, you know, what's, what's his name? And Terry very loyally affirmed that I was, in fact, the Lone Ranger. <laughs> and the point of this is, here I am, a four-year-old, and this, this idea of uh, uh, the cowboy, this quintessential American icon associated with the West, was already deeply embedded in my my mind and in my my uh, notion of who I was and who I would become. And for boys of your generation, I mean, you weren't alone, right? This probably would have been... 
Oh, no. Mo- no. Most, you know, most boys of your generation. By the, the mid-50s, uh, you know, radio and television was was pushing this, the, the Western and the cowboy image. Uh, you know, and the cowboy is the, the, the iconic symbol of, of American manhood. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, Deadwood. In a, in a way, as you, as you present, this is a little bit sad. Um, it's, it's a myth or maybe the reality of, of what, 1880s Deadwood. And this, is, and this is, you can see this all over the West. This is what's being presented. This is what brings the tourists in. Yeah, the the rip roaring uh, cattle town or the rip roaring gambling town uh, in Deadwood's case, uh, and they they work very hard to promote this image of uh, you know slightly uh, edgy lawlessness, if you will, uh, and uh, where where you know individualism can 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 uh, play itself out right on the streets, <laughs> as you were. Now you say you write in the book that violence of the myth of the West, you know, the the cowboys facing off, it, you know, the gunslingers facing off against each other, et cetera, et cetera. That's more myth, but but there is a violence that was pervasive and continued through through the West. Yeah, as I noted, you know, some of the 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 more famous characters of of the West, uh, such as Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. They really were sheriffs in uh, Dodge City, but they were more likely to be found cleaning up dead animals off the street than depositing dead cowboys on them. Uh, the The real problem or the real issue of violence uh, in the West is is to be found more in the kind of organized violence of the powerful against the powerless that we see at uh, most notably places like Sand Creek, um, and up there in in North Dakota at uh, I'm going blank here on you at uh, oh the massacre oh, site oh uh, Little Bighorn no well, no, uh, um, knee. Wounded knee, yes. Wounded knee. Yeah. Uh, wounded knee yes Wounded Knee yeah Wounded Knee the 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 you know, organized power uh, against uh, the the powerlessness we also can find it in in places such as the coal mines of Colorado and Utah, where you know the state deployed armed force at times to prevent miners from organizing and pressing their demands for better wages and a safe workplace. Hmm. Do you do you think that continues? I don't know any of these themes, or or have we made progress? I'm thinking of the yeah, uh, the debates over extraction in the West, which are raging now in the West. Like fracking, yeah, uh, yeah. You mean, yeah. Well, certainly, uh, the it would seem that the uh, the uh, deck is stacked against uh, landowners and small communities who uh, who don't necessarily want to have their groundwater polluted or risk having their groundwater polluted, depending on who you believe, uh, in order to uh, feed the furnaces of large cities like Denver. Uh, there's a there's a, a rural versus urban component to this too, and and we see here in Colorado complaints that uh, you know the the city is uh, working its will against people in the in the countryside, and uh, they don't much like it. Mm-hmm. 
if you just joined us, we're talking with James Whiteside. He is a retired history professor. The book is Old Blues Road, A Historian's Motorcycle Journeys in the American West. I want to uh, jump into talking uh, the, a variation on this theme. We were talking about powerful versus the powerless and how that relates to and, and resonates today. You make some interesting points about uh, American Indians versus the mainstream culture and the questions that continue to today on the on the sacred, the meaning of the sacred. So monuments, uh, places that we go. Sure. Um, two or three that come immediately to mind would be um, disputes over Devil's Tower in Wyoming and then not far to the east over Bear Butte in South Dakota. And also Mount Rushmore uh, is, a, is a real bone of contention. And, and it, it, it goes, as you said, to, the, to an issue of what is considered sacred and to whom and whose values get to win out. Um, Northern Plains Indians have for years been protesting the use of Bear Butte, which is a sacred site to them, as a rock climbing venue. And they particularly have asked or demanded that uh, rock climbing be curtailed during the uh, month of June when uh, they traditionally perform the sun dance. And local interests, the, the uh, local population, uh, particularly those who make their living teaching rock climbing, are, are aghast at this. And they're essentially saying, well, your, your belief that that Devil's Tower is a sacred spot uh, does not trump my right to make money. Uh, similarly, over at Bear Butte, which is sometimes referred to as the Indian Cathedral of the Plains, uh, there's popped up uh, a number of campgrounds that serve the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. And so uh, the sound of, of revelry and hard rock music uh, can be heard day and night around there during the time of the rally uh, when others are trying to use this essentially as a church. And uh, the outcome, not surprisingly, is that the commercial interests win. Mm -hmm. And the, the Native American, the Indian interests are, are pushed aside largely. This is a theme, an unfortunate theme throughout the history of the West. Yeah, and, and you know, in the reverse of that, uh, you have a great deal of, of Indian outrage over Mount Rushmore, which, uh, you know, um, Americans, or, or, or white Americans, if you will, revere as a, a sacred uh, site honoring American democracy. But to the Indians, as they put it, it's, it's like a boot on their throat. Hmm. It's a symbol of everything they have lost. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily presume to offer solutions uh, to cut through this kind of Gordian knot, but it, it strikes me as very interesting that uh, these kinds of conflicts persist, you know, clear into the 21st century. Well, Tell me about the the Crazy Horse Memorial. I think some people might see this as, uh, you know, maybe the white people have Mount Rushmore, the Indians have an even bigger, more grandiose scheme. It's a Crazy Horse. But some American Indians don't don't see it that way. 
Well, of course, the uh, the Crazy Horse Memorial is is a stupendous undertaking that is uh, just really beginning to emerge from the rock there outside of uh, the town of Custer, and it was intended by the the man who started the project, a a sculptor named Korczak Zilkowski, uh, as a tribute to Crazy Horse and to the Northern Plains Indians, and and he was brought to the tribe or to the project, in fact, by leaders of uh, of the Lakota. Uh, so evidently, uh, you know, undertaken with their blessing. But in in later days, um, Indian activists such as the late Russell Means have been beating the drum, as it were, against it, saying that it you know it essentializes. American Indians kind of locks them into a nostalgic 19th century image of American Indians and is just another of the white man's commercial despoliations of the natural environment. That, uh, as, as one critic said, you know, you don't need to carve up a mountain in order to uh, honor Crazy Horse. You just have to look at the sky and appreciate the way birds fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet this idea originated with uh, a Lakota chief, right? Yes, Henry Standing Bear, mm-hmm. who uh, had first tried to get uh, uh, Gutson Borglum, the, uh, the sculptor of Mount Rushmore, to include Crazy Horse or Red Cloud or, or someone uh, in the Mount Rushmore uh, tableau. But uh, that, was, that, was, that didn't get anywhere. And so uh, Henry Standing Bear began to research artists and and recruited uh, Zilkowski mm. to the job. And Zilkowski arrived in, I think, 1947 and spent the rest of his life uh, carving, uh, carving this mountain into the image of uh, a crazy horse. And as I said, the thing is just absolutely stupendous. The, the face and the arm and the head of the horse have, have uh, emerged from it and... Uh, I've read that you could put a, a good-sized house inside one of the nostrils of the horse. <laughs> yeah, that's it, it. Does bring up very interesting questions, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it really does. If you environmental uh, um, questions, again, as you it, it, it shows how this this continuous uh, rubbing up of the past and the present in the West. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, James Whiteside. Two thousand five, uh, he. Uh, bought uh, a motorcycle, Harley-Davidson Heritage Softtail. Though it's red, he uh, named it Old Blue and uh, set off on a series of adventures. Uh, he is a retired history professor, so as he uh, made these adventures around the West, um, he started taking notes. And the result is a very interesting book. It's a travelogue, but it's also a meditation on the American West. What is the American West and how the past rubs up against the present? You can join this program at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Next time on Living on Earth, research suggests common herbicides can make some bacteria more resistant to antibiotics. I would not say we should remove herbicides from use, but we don't know the full story of what's happening to these bacteria when they're exposed to these low concentrations of herbicide. Another piece of the antibiotic resistance puzzle, next time on Living on Earth. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
our listeners are company presidents, board members, partners, and other top executives. Your company can talk directly to these decision makers with program sponsorship. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest today is retired historian, uh, or historian, I guess you, you don't retire for, as historian, but retired from his job as a professor, James Whiteside. Old Blues Road is the book, A Historian's Motorcycle Journeys in the American West. James Whiteside uh, bought a Harley-Davidson in 2005, set out on a series of uh, travels. Over six years, traveled more than 15,000 miles, and his book recounts his travels and looks at uh, the processes of change that made the American West what it is today, the complex ways in which America's past and present come together. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com is our email, and you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. Uh, James Whiteside, I want to get into issues of, uh, of water and uh, this is an interesting issue that's, you know, always been with peoples in the West, sort of ties the past and the present and future together. Uh, you uh, you took a trip, one of your trips was to the Four Corners region. And uh, interesting, you, you recount, uh, the, the, especially in that area, you can really uh, look at issues of permanence and transience. So I'd like to start with maybe uh, your trip to, uh, to Mesa Verde. Yeah, yeah. Um... This, to me, was, was in many ways the, the journey that really kind of intellectually brought it all together to me, this idea of the, the continuity of the past and the present or the past rubbing up against the present. Um, when I started thinking about the way water connects our most remote human past in the West, to the present, and and this is in the experience of of the ancestral Pueblans, what used to be called the the folks who used to be called the Anasazi, um, and their the the development of their culture and their sudden disappearance uh, from the Four Corners region, um, and it wasn't just Mesa Verde, but but all of the major ancestral Pueblan sites. Uh, including uh, Chaco and one of my favorite spots, Aztec in New Mexico, seemingly were abandoned just overnight. And this has puzzled archaeologists and historians ever since. And there are a couple of of major explanations for them. Um, One of them is violence, that uh, the ancestral Pueblans simply um, were driven out as a result of the violence by uh, perpetrated by other incoming peoples, uh, you know, possibly Ute or Apachean raiders. Um, the evidence on that is is a bit sketchy. Some scholars are very definite that yes, this is the cause. Others say no, no, no. There, you really don't have the evidence of, uh, of of violence on a scale or intensity that would result in their leaving. So that leaves the other explanation, which is drought, um, that uh, in the decades immediately before the ancestral Pueblans packed up and left, um, 
there was a, a, a period of fairly intensive drought in the southwest region. And so, well, some scholars say there you have it. You know, the, the rain stopped, the, the creeks dried up, and so the, uh, the ancestral poems just packed up and they went somewhere else. Uh, that somewhere else being, among other areas, uh, you know, north-central New Mexico, where they became the uh, modern Pueblo peoples. Um, seems like a, uh, a, a, a clear enough and direct enough explanation, but then others began studying uh, the actual climatological conditions at the time of their supposed disappearance, uh, using tree ring studies, among other things. And they found that, well, yes, there was a drought, but there was still enough rainfall to sustain life. So then that says, well, then the drought isn't the reason for, that they left. But in fact, it is, because what had happened is that the ancestral Pueblans had developed a very complex uh, culture that was based on irrigation. And when the drought hit, that culture, that, that, that social system could not be sustained. It wasn't that there wasn't enough water to sustain life. There wasn't enough water to sustain their culture as they had developed it. And that's what links the ancestral Pueblans to us 800 years later. Mm. Uh, the, the question of whether or not, you know, if, if uh, we have another protracted period of, of drought, and you know, all you have to do is look at California, which is going into, what, its fifth year of drought, uh, you have to wonder, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. uh, if it proves to be the case that there really is not enough water in the West to sustain our uh, highly organized, highly urbanized, and uh, intensely irrigation-based agricultural. Uh, 800 years ago, the ancestral Pueblans could pack up and leave. You know, where are we going to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in our millions. Very, very How are we going to live? It's, it's, it's a real problem. I do not have good answers, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's important to at least uh, understand that the water difficulties that we are encountering now uh, are as old as human settlement in the West. It's, it's, it's part of our history that we cannot escape. I wonder if I could have you read another uh, short passage from the book. This is page 148. Okay. Uh, your, your trip to the, the and... four, four corners. Uh, and the, the last paragraph on 148, continuing over um, to uh, page 149 okay. to, to the next section. This is something I hadn't, hadn't known. Uh, John Wesley Powell made some predictions about water in the West that, have, that are bearing out. Yeah. Uh... Do you want the whole paragraph? Uh, yes, whole paragraph. I'll start with and, the and, second sentence. Yeah. Um, in 1893, four decades before Hoover Dam, seven decades before Glen Canyon Dam, and 74 years before Blue Mesa Dam, John Wesley Powell, the American adventurer who first surveyed the Colorado River and himself an advocate of limited irrigation, warned a Congress of irrigation apostles. 
when all the rivers are used, when all the creeks and the ravines, when all the brooks, when all the springs are used, when all the reservoirs along the streams are used, and when all the canyon waters are taken up, when all the artesian waters are taken up, when all the wells are sunk or dug that can be dug in in all this arid region, there is still not sufficient water to irrigate all this arid region. The audience practically booed Powell off the stage, and William Ellsworth Smythe, who was one of the leading apostles of what I call the irrigation dream, William Ellsworth Smythe dismissed him as, in no sense, a man of practical commercial instincts. <laughs> but yet, Powell was the better prophet. Yeah, yeah, certainly true. And and in the previous paragraph, you uh, you cite a, a study um, which predicts a 50% chance that by 2017, water levels in Lake Mead could fall below level required for Hoover Dam's turbines to generate electrical power. Sure. Uh, all you have to do is, is drive by or look at recent photographs of Lake Powell or of uh, Glen Canyon or Blue Mesa in south-central Colorado, and you can see how the water levels have dropped. And, uh, you know, I, I was postulating, well, maybe, maybe uh, in, in a sense, the... Uh, the environment is going to answer these questions for us, that uh, if the water levels do drop, we're, we're just not going to be able to run the turbines and, and irrigate the, the, the fields of California's Central Valley or the Imperial Valley anymore. Just have about... Uh, one of, oh, one of the things I, 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 I comment on, too, is how this whole western water system... Uh, you know, beginning with the Colorado River Compact of 1922, all of this was based on bad data. Um, the, the the projections of stream flows and the the carving up of the Colorado River Basin's water was was based on uh, calculations of rainfall from late in the 19th and in early into the 20th century, years that were abnormally wet for the region. So this whole system is is based on on numbers of, of of inches of rain that are simply not historically normal for the region. One of we just have uh, two three or four minutes left. Um, one of the themes in the book, the importance of a sense of place. Yes. What if you talk about that? And and is there a favorite place that you have visited? This was driven home to me at Sand Creek. Um, let me preface it by talking about how we academic historians do most of our work. Uh, we encounter history for the most part in archives and in libraries, which is fine because, you know, history, the study of, the formal study of history is rooted in documents. Um, and, and that's as it should be. But in the course of these journeys, and especially at Sand Creek, I, it, it, it came to me that something that's often lacking in scholarly history is, is, a, is a certain empathy that can be gained by simply going to the battlefield or to the site of the disaster. 
Now, folks who we academic historians dismiss as the history buffs know this almost instinctively. And this is a lesson that uh, we highly trained scholars need to to learn and, and I think, bring into uh, our practice of history. That is a sense of how human beings fit into this place that we call the West and how the relationship between people and place shaped our history. It's, 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 it's all well and good to, to study this in the library and the archive, but I think sometimes you need to go to a place to appreciate it. And, and this happened to me in a very profound way at Sand Creek in southeastern Colorado, where uh, Colorado militiamen massacred hundreds of, uh, of uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians in, in 1864. Uh, I was standing there quite alone uh, at the small monument overlooking the traditional site of the massacre, and it was a perfectly still and quiet day. And all of a sudden, there was just a one puff of wind that rustled the the leaves in the in the cottonwoods down below in the dry creek bed, and and it just it just shook me. Um, I'm not a religious person by a long shot, and as I say, I'm not much impressed with ghost stories, but it almost felt as though the, the, the people in the events of Sand Creek were, were telling me, you know what, we're still here. We have something to tell you if you, if you can tune your ears and listen to us. Uh, just a couple minutes left here. Um, do you have future plans? This summer are you going to get on the motorcycle and go somewhere? I hope to. Um, don't know that I'm going to do... Any, a, a volume two anytime soon, but you know I spent the last couple of summers kind of chained to my keyboard getting this book put together. So uh, I'm, I'm anxious to get back out on the road, and my my friend Phineas is uh, urging me to uh, do so, and he wants to ride up north toward Canada and uh, see some uh, areas of Idaho and Montana and maybe southern Canada that we've never been to. So I'm, I'm certainly hopeful. Well, uh, very good. Good luck on your adventures. Interesting book. James Whiteside, author Thank of you so much. Old Blues Road, A Historian's Motorcycle Journeys to the American West, has been our guest. Thanks. Appreciate it. And to help you join us tomorrow for Access Utah, thanks for listening today. Commentator, Thad Box. Our ivy plant died. For 45 years, that plant was a significant part of our journey. It just showed up one morning after a party. We never knew who brought it, but it watched family and friends come and go through a front door that was never locked. It was there when our family gathered for graduation parties, marriage ceremonies, and Thanksgiving dinners where family and students from many countries ate around a table that stretched well into the living room. It was there when a child twisted a leg, crashed a bicycle, or came home happy and cold from the slopes. It witnessed CAPS's early shelter of domestic violent victims, meetings of the League of Women Voters, and formation of a chapter of the International Connoisseurs of Red and Green Chili. When I retired, we took it to New Mexico. It grew as our parents came to live with us. It was present when Dad died, when Mother went to live with Sis, and when Jenny's mother breathed her last breath. It helped us understand that life is a process where the old is replaced with the new, 
where new vigor emerges as the old weathers. It came with us when we returned to Cache Valley. Now old folks ourselves, we look for ways to fit into the community of our formative years. The ivy reminded us that viejos could be useful and contribute to the common good. For 18 years after we returned to Utah, it stayed healthy. Then it lost vigor and died. It's hard to lose a friend that welcomed our children's mates and our grandchildren into our world, one that listened without judgment to our failures and to our successes, one that knew secrets even we do not like to think about, one that reminded us that as we age, we weaken and cannot contribute much, or that we may depend on others for the simplest of things, or that the dying process cannot be stopped even by people with the best of intentions. We know not whether the person who gave it to us is still alive and well, sick and dying, or has been dead for many years. But that unknown person's gift has been with us for almost half a century. During good times and bad, we've had living testimony of your love and a healthy living reminder of why we exist. Thank you, our anonymous friend. This is Thad Box. Companies are out there innovating, trying to recruit the best people they can, which means they need the best offices they can, too. We're going to spend millions of dollars. We're going to build out a beautiful new open plan office setting. It's going to be great. Lots of daylight. Fantastic. I'm Kai Rizdal, unchaining the desk worker from the desk next time on Marketplace. It's from APN. Tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Today on Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Time now, 10 o'clock.